Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There are two other hosts that are joining me today, of course. Danielson. Ayo. And Hans. What's good? So before we start today's episode, I just want to say, like always, we do not run any ads on this show or take any money from any corporations. So if you'd like to help us out, well, there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. For only $5 a month, which is 16 cents a day, you can sign up to her Patreon and get an extra episode each week. These Patreon episodes are exclusive to members only. Today, we released a Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over Aleister Crowley. Also, we have over 50 extra episodes, which is over 70 extra hours already locked and loaded for your listening pleasure, such as Spear of Destiny, Bilderberg Group, Bohemian Grove, Clinton Body Count, and much more, which you get access to all of them for just five bucks a month. Since we are on episode 100, we're going to be taking a break for a couple weeks. And during our break, we will be producing Patreon episodes weekly. So if you miss our content and you cannot get enough of it and you're all caught up on the regular episodes and you want some more of us, just go over to Patreon and sign up to get our weekly Patreon exclusive episodes that we will still be producing. And I just wanted to say that the money we get from that and merchandise sales goes to bettering the show. Also, we know things are tough out there right now. So if you can't afford a shirt or a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes, and that helps us out a ton. If you don't want to leave one, though, then that is perfectly fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. Also, one last thing. If any of you would like to reach out to us, then you can shoot us a message on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or you can go to our website, thereisofthethirdkind.com, and click the contact button. There you will find our email addresses. Well, all right, that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over Theodore Kaczynski. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk about his childhood, him going to college, his career, the bombings and manifesto, and then we'll transition into the trial, some strange facts and findings, theories, and of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. How do you catch a twisted genius, someone who builds untraceable bombs and delivers them to random targets, who leaves false clues to throw off authorities and lives like a recluse in the mountains of Montana and tells no one of his secret crimes? That was the challenge the FBI was facing, who spent nearly two decades hunting down this lone wolf. But was it the government themselves that created this twisted genius? That they did mind control experiments on him at Harvard? Or was it even him that was doing these bombings? 
This is the Unabomber, Theodore Kaczynski. Now, just like every week, before we get into those theories, we have to start at the beginning, the background of Theodore Kaczynski. So, Dan, would you like to start it off for us? On May 22nd, 1942, in the city of Chicago, Illinois, a couple by the name of Theodore Richard Kaczynski and Wanda Dombeck gave birth to a little boy named Theodore John Kaczynski, a.k.a. Ted Kaczynski. When little baby Ted was about nine months old, he developed a severe case of hives, which required him to be quarantined for 10 days in the hospital. During this time in the hospital, little baby Ted had to stay alone. His parents couldn't stay with him, and they were only allowed to visit him every other day for only a couple of hours. After that, his parents said that he showed little emotion for months after being isolated in the hospital. Now, just a side note here, they say that this is one of the things that had an effect on his behavior. Just keep that in mind as we move forward. So now we're going to jump ahead to the age of six to nine years old. Ted was described as a normal kid by the administrators of Sherman Elementary School that he attended in Chicago, Illinois. Now, when Ted was around seven years old, his brother David was born. We fast forward a little bit more to, you know, when Ted is 10 years old. During this time, Ted's parents wanted him to be around what they considered, and we quote, a better class of friends. So his family decided to move out of Chicago into the southwest suburb of Evergreen Park. There, in this new area, Ted seemed like a normal kid to most of the other kids and adults. Except for one thing. Ted was super smart. He was so smart that in the fifth grade, They gave him an IQ test, and he scored a 167, which is the same IQ range as Stephen Hawkins and Albert Einstein. So Ted was extremely good at mathematics and science. He would spend hours trying to figure out and solve advanced math problems. Now, besides him being super smart, he was just like any other high school student. He joined multiple clubs throughout his high school years like the chess club, biology, German, and of course, the mathematics club. He was even a part of the school's marching band and played the trombone. He explored musical talents like Bach and Vivaldi, which he even wrote compositions to play for his brother and father at times, which they also played with him too. At the age of 15, Ted graduated high school. Later on in life, he was quoted saying that graduating from high school at such a young age was difficult. Not because of the work, but because of the social aspect of things. He was always smaller and younger than his classmates, so he was always being treated differently. Fresh out of high school at the age of 16, Ted received a scholarship to Harvard University. Of course, his parents were like super excited because their son is going to go to such a prestigious college. And even Ted was, he was fairly excited as well. He was going to finally be able to be at a school with like-minded people that had the level of intelligence that he had. So while Ted was in college, his mother received a letter in the mail from Harvard. When she opened the letter, it explained that a Dr. Henry Murray wanted to have Ted participate in a study group on the psychological 
examination of the mind. Dr. Murray explained that it was a harmless study that would be used to better help other people in the future. Dr. Murray also explained that he needed Wanda's permission since Ted was technically underage. Thinking to herself, Wanda didn't want this to reflect badly on Ted, but thought it could actually help him since he was a different-minded kid. So she sent the form and let her back with her signature as fast as she could. Once Dr. Murray got the sign formed for Ted, the testing began. Just a little side note here. This Dr. Murray worked for the OSS during World War II and specialized in enhanced interrogation methods. From our MK Ultra episode a couple weeks back, the OSS turned into the CIA. So just keep that in mind as we keep rolling forward. Exactly. Nice little drop of a knowledge nuggie there, Hans. That's right. All right. So Ted went along with being volunteered for Dr. Murray's experiments. The first thing Ted was told to do was to write a long essay about the things he believed in full-heartedly. Once he wrote it, an examiner read it, then picked it apart from top to bottom, finding anything and everything wrong with Ted's thought process. The examiner would then transfer Ted to a holding room where he was to be hooked up to a heart rate monitor and a brainwave monitor. This room also had a one-way mirror for Dr. Murray to watch. Ted was then viciously attacked with words, stating that his work was nothing short of a high school essay, that if he produced stuff like this, then he should just go back and repeat high school since he was such a failure. Also, one of the examiners did something else that was pretty shitty to Ted. The examiner lied to Ted and told him that his mother wrote to them. She said that poor Teddy isn't right in the head, and she despises him as a son, and that she is afraid that he'll be a failure like his father. Well, you know, this, of course, was a lie. Ted's mom never wrote that. But Ted didn't know that. Now, during these sessions, most of them were recorded. And why were they recorded? You would think it would be for study purposes, right? Nope. They were used by Dr. Murray to make Ted watch video clips of himself after he was verbally tortured, and he would stop at certain points to show Ted crying and ask, What was going through your mind right there? Must have been something since you cried like a girl. So after these sessions, the doctor would congratulate Ted and tell him he was doing a good job and can't wait to see him for the next session. Ted participated in these experiments for three years, going back and back again to endure the torture. These sessions didn't affect Ted's grades because he ended up finishing his degree at Harvard and continued on to receive his doctorate at Michigan University. In late 1967, 25-year-old Ted accepted a job at the University of California, Berkeley, as an acting assistant professor, where he taught mathematics. By September 1968, Ted was appointed assistant professor. His teaching evaluations suggested he was not well-liked by his students. He seemed uncomfortable teaching, taught straight from the textbook, and refused to answer questions. Then on June 30, 1969, without any explanation, Ted quit his job and moved to his parents' house in Lombard, Illinois. Two years later, in 1971, 
Ted moved to a remote cabin he had built outside Lincoln, Montana, where he could live a simple life with little money and without electricity or running water. Ted's cabin was simple. It contained a bed, two chairs, storage trunks, a wood-burning stove, and a lot of books. He worked odd jobs and received significant financial support from his family. He used an old bicycle to get to town and volunteered at the local library that he visited frequently. So by 1975, Ted was mostly enjoying his peaceful, off-the-grid lifestyle. However, he became disturbed by the encroachment of real estate and industrial development in the area around his home. His quiet, wooded area was no longer quiet. Ted had a favorite spot in the woods. It was kind of a rolling, hilly area that had a ravine and even a waterfall. It was a two-day hike from his cabin, and he loved it there. One day, when he hiked there, Ted saw that they had built a road right through the middle of it. This was his turning point. Ted said, and I quote, It was from that point on I decided that rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. So Ted began vandalizing construction sites in the Lincoln area in an effort to sabotage the industrial development, but it didn't do too much. He had lost faith in the idea of reform and saw violent collapse as the only way to bring down the industrial system. Now, about his means of taking it down, Ted said, and we quote, Human tendency, for most people, is to take the path of least resistance. Give up your car, your television set, your electricity is not the path of least resistance for most people. As I see it, I don't think there is any controlled or planned way in which we can dismantle the industrial system. I think that the only way we get rid of it is if it breaks down and collapses. The big problem is that people don't believe a revolution is possible, and it is not possible precisely because they do not believe it is possible. I think it would be good if a conscious effort was being made to get as many people as possible introduced to the wilderness. I think what has to be done is not to try and convince or persuade the majority of people that we are right, as much as try to increase tensions in society to point where things start to break down. To create a situation where people get uncomfortable enough that they're going to rebel. So the question is, how do you increase those tensions? It was then that Ted came to the conclusion that more violent methods would be the only solution to what he saw as the problem of industrial civilization. And that transitions us into the bombing section of this episode. Now, what we're going to go over is a timeline of when the bombings began and when they ended. And we're going to include, of course, the information of how they were found and who they were sent to and all that good stuff. So, Dan, do you want to start it off for us? Of course. So over a period of 17 years, beginning in 1978, Ted began a series of coordinated attacks where he would send bombs disguised as mail packages to specific targets. 
He sent these packages either through the U.S. Postal Service or he would occasionally hand deliver them. So like Dan stated, he started this in 1978. That is when he started working on creating his first bomb. This first one that Ted had made was primarily fabricated from metal. It was a piece of metal pipe about one inch diameter and nine inches long. The bomb contained smokeless explosive powders and the box and the plugs that sealed the pipe ends were handcrafted from wood. Now, this is similar to a pipe bomb, but it's kind of a little different. I'll let Dan explain since, you know, he's the expert on bomb making. All right, so most pipe bombs usually use threaded metal ends sold in many hardware stores. However, Ted's first bomb that he made had wooden ends. Now, this wooden end did not allow a significant amount of pressure to build within the pipe, which this significant pressure is what makes the bomb so devastating, which wooden ends don't allow that pressure to build up. So, yeah, Ted kind of overlooked that. But spoiler alert, he fixes that later on. Also, another thing about this first bomb is that he used quite a primitive trigger device. He used a nail that was tensioned by rubber bands that he had designed to slam into six common match heads. When the box was open, the match heads would immediately burst into flame and ignite the explosive powders. However, on the first bomb, when the trigger hit the match heads, only three of those match heads ignited. Um, and another spoiler, Ted did adjust his bomb making skills later on, like Dan said. Uh, he added a more efficient technique where he would use batteries and heat a filament wire to light the explosives faster and more efficiently. And, you know, so that's just a little knowledge nugget for you. Also, Ted taught himself all of this. He used pieces of scrap material and wood. This bomb construction was all done by hand, without the assistance of power tools and even making the simple tools he needed by hand. He cast certain metal parts, including aluminum, by melting metal scraps on the wood-burning stove of his cabin, and any store-bought purchases were made far away from his cabin, often while in disguise. He did all of this so it would be untraceable. Alright, so it's May of 1978. Ted built his first bomb that was pretty primitive, but he decides to send it out anyways. His first target is materials engineer professor Buckley Chris of Northwestern University. Ted got the bomb package and put Buckley's return address on it, as if the professor had sent the package himself and it was being returned to him. The package was then placed in the parking lot at the University of Illinois so that someone would pick it up and return it to Buckley which is exactly what happened. When Buckley received the package, he noticed that it was not addressed in his own handwriting. He became suspicious of it and contacted campus policeman Terry Marker. Terry showed up and decided to open the package, which exploded immediately. Luckily, his injuries weren't that serious, as he only required some medical assistance at Evanston Hospital for his left hand. All right, so Ted's second bomb was on May 9th, 1979. This one was disguised as a cigarette box and was sent to, again, Northwestern University. There at the university, a graduate student named John Harris found the box left in a room that was used by another graduate student. Harris thought the cigarette box was a present and decided to open it. 
Luckily, the bomb didn't do much damage, and Harris only received minor cuts and burns. So now let's move on to the third bombing, which was November 15, 1979. On this day, American Airlines Flight 444, which was a Boeing 727, was flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C. A package that had a bomb inside of it was placed in a cargo hold under the plane. Due to a faulty timing system, the bomb didn't explode. It only started smoking, which caused the pilot to make an emergency landing. Twelve of the passengers on the flight were treated for smoke inhalation. Authorities did make a statement that said that the bomb had enough firepower to obliterate the plane. Now, because bombing an airliner is a federal crime in the United States, the FBI became involved after this incident and started calling the unknown person the Unabomber. Now, here's a little knowledge nugget for you. How the FBI came up with the name the Unabomber is that the FBI knew that he bombed a university and an airline. So the letters U and N came from the first two letters of university. The letter A came from the first letter in airline, and bomb, of course, came from bomber, which, of course, makes the name Unabomber. Little knowledge nugget right there for you. So this FBI-led task force included the ATF and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Together, this task force grew to more than 150 full-time investigators, analysts, and others. This team made every possible forensic examination of recovered components of the explosives and study the lives of victims in detail to try and get any clues about who was doing these bombings. But these efforts proved of little use in identifying the suspect since he built his bombs essentially from scrap metals available almost anywhere and the victims were chosen irregularly from library research. Even a 1-800 hotline was set up by the Unabomb Task Force to take any calls related to the Unabomber investigation. With a $1 million reward for anyone who could provide information leading to the Unabomber's capture. So the next bomb, which was the fourth one, occurred on June 10th, 1980. This bomb was sent to the United Airlines President, Percy Wood, in Chicago. In the package, there was a book titled The Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. Inside the book was the bomb, which Percy opened, and of course it exploded, causing damage to his thigh, face, and hands. The fifth bomb was on October 8th of 1981. The bomb was a package that was wrapped in brown paper and tied with a string, then sent to the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. The bomb was discovered in the hallway of the building of the university, and the police were called. It was safely detonated without causing any injury. The sixth bomb was on May 5th, 1982. It was a package that was sent to the head of the computer science department at Vanderbilt University. The head of the computer science had his secretary, Janet Smith, open the package for him in his office. The bomb went off and she received severe injuries to both her hands, requiring extensive treatment. So the seventh bomb was on July 2nd, 1982. A package was left in the break room at the University of California, Berkeley. The engineering professor there at the university decides, hey, what the heck, I'll open it. Which, of course, it explodes, and he received injuries to his right hand and face. Then almost three years later, 
on May 15, 1985, the 8th bombing occurred. This one is the first serious injury. Just like the 7th bomb, this one was also left in the break room at the University of California. John Hauser, who was a graduate student and captain in the United States Air Force, decides to open the box. The bomb explodes and he loses four of his fingers and vision in one eye. This bomb, like the other of Ted's, was handcrafted and made with wooden parts. Almost one month later, on June 13, 1985, the ninth bomb occurred. A package was sent to the Boeing Fabrication Division in Washington State. Individuals there were suspicious of the package, so they called the police. The bomb squad came and inspected it. They figured out it was indeed a bomb and safely detonated it. That fall, on November 15, 1985, the 10th bombing occurred. A package was sent to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. A psychology professor and his assistant opened the package, which included a letter asking the professor to review a student's master thesis. Also in the package was a three-ringed binder, which contained the bomb inside. The bomb went off, injuring them both with shrapnel wounds, and one of them permanently lost their hearing. Less than a month later, on December 11, 1985, the 11th bombing occurs, and this one is the first fatality. So 38-year-old Hugh Scrutton, who owns a computer store in Sacramento, California, notices a package in the parking lot of his computer store. He gets the package, opens it up, and the package explodes. Nails loaded inside of this package kill Hugh. Two years later, on February 20th, 1987, the 12th bomb happens in Salt Lake City, Utah, in the parking lot of a computer store. Gary Wright sees a piece of what he thought was lumber in the computer store's parking lot. He then goes out to attempt to remove the piece of lumber, only to realize that it is actually a bomb disguised as lumber, but it was too late. It explodes, seriously injuring him. The explosion severed nerves in Gary's left arm and propelled more than 200 pieces of shrapnel into his body. Now, there is something worth noting here about this 12th bombing, is that no one had a single clue as to who could be doing this. That was until a store employee of that computer store saw a man leave the parking lot before the bomb went off. The employee described what the person looked like to a sketch artist, and a composite sketch was created. This was the first image that authorities could place on the person that they called the Unabomber. Now, this image is the one that always comes up when you search Unabomber on DuckDuckGo or any search engine. It's a sketch of a man with a mustache, big aviator sunglasses on, and a hood put over his head from a sweatshirt that he was wearing. Now, even though this sketch was circulated by the media and authorities almost nonstop, no one could identify who this person was. Now, for the next six years, no bombs were sent. Ted took a break until June 22, 1993, when the 13th bomb occurred. On this day, a genetic researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, named Charles Epstein, no relation to Jeffrey Epstein, just saying, he received a package in the mail. Charles opened the package, which contained a bomb. 
The explosion severed several of Charles' fingers and caused abdominal injuries and resulted in partial loss of his hearing. So that same weekend, on June 24, 1993, the 14th bombing occurred. David Galinter, who was a computer science professor at Yale University, received a package. He opened the package, and the bomb exploded. David lost sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and a portion of his right hand. The following year, in December of 1994, the 15th bombing occurs. An individual named Thomas Mosser, who was an executive for the company of Burson, Kahn, and Wolf. Now, Burson, Kahn, and Wolf was a multinational public relations and communications firm which worked with ExxonMobil to repair their company's public image after the Exxon Valdez oil incident, where Exxon spilled 10.8 million U.S. gallons of crude oil into the ocean. It is considered the worst oil spill worldwide in terms of damage to the environment and the second largest in U.S. waters after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So this Thomas Moser guy, who was an executive of this company, that helped Exxon repair their company's public image? Well, he received a package in the mail in December of 1994. Of course, Thomas opened the package, and it contained a bomb, which explodes and kills him. Almost half a year later, on April 24, 1995, the 16th bombing occurs. A package was mailed to William Dennison, who was the president of the Timber Industry Lobbying Group of California Forestry Association. However, William had since retired as the president, and an individual named Gilbert Brent Murray was the new president of this lobbying group. So Gilbert figured, eh, I'll accept the package on behalf of William, since I'm the new president and all, and he decided to open it up, which contained a bomb, and of course it explodes and kills him. So this is the last death, and this would be the last bomb that would be sent by Ted. So, shortly after the last bombing in 1995, Ted mailed several letters to major media outlets and even to some of his former victims. These letters outlined his goals and demanded that his 50-plus page, 35,000-word essay that he wrote titled Industrial Society and Its Future be printed verbatim by a major newspaper or journal. Ted also stated in this letter that if this demand was met, he would then end his bombing campaign. Now, what did this industrial society and its futures say that was so important to Ted? So the manifesto, which of course is titled Industrial Society and Its Future, begins with Ted's assertion that, and I quote, the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. The first sections of this manifesto are devoted to the psychological analysis of various groups, which are primarily leftists and scientists and of the psychological consequences for individual life within the industrial technological system, which he states has robbed contemporary humans of their autonomy, diminished their rapporteur with nature, and forced them to, and I quote, behave in ways that are increasingly remote from the natural pattern of human behavior. The later sections of this manifesto speculate about the future evolution of this system and states that it will inevitably lead to the end of human freedom. It then calls for a revolution against technology and explains how that might be accomplished. So, 
Of course, there was a great deal of controversy as to whether the document should be published for the public to see. During this time of debate, Bob Guccione of Penthouse Magazine volunteered to publish it. Ted said that Penthouse was less respectable than the New York Times and the Washington Post and said that to increase our chances of getting our stuff published in some respectable periodical, he would reserve the right to plant one, and only one, bomb intended to kill after the manuscript has been published. If Penthouse published the document instead of the Times or the Post. Now, shortly after that, the United States Department of Justice, along with FBI Director and Attorney General Janet Reno, recommended publication out of concern for public safety and in hopes that a reader could identify the author. So on September 19, 1995, the Washington Post, in collaboration with the New York Times, published the 35,000-word Anti-Technology Manifesto, written by the person claiming to be the Unabomber. After the manifesto was published, the FBI received over a thousand calls a day for months in response to the offer of the $1 million reward for information leading to the identity of the Unabomber. So also around this time, the manifesto was seen by Ted's brother and sister-in-law, David and Linda. They read the manifesto and started to speculate if Ted was the one who wrote it. David compared the writings to previous letters and works by his brother Ted and felt that the authors were one and the same. But David knew that the FBI was busy with thousands of other tips, so he hired a private investigator to gather evidence and compile a dossier against Ted that was eventually turned over to the authorities in February of 1996. So the FBI got their dossier and looked through it. Some of the investigators were not convinced that Ted matched the profile of the suspect. This debate, if Ted was the Unabomber, continued in the FBI research headquarters for two months. During this time, Ted's brother David, who mailed the dossier, of course, was contacted by the FBI and assisted them in helping with the investigation. For the next two months, David developed a respectful relationship with the FBI investigators and met with them many times in Washington, D.C., Texas, Chicago, and New York. These FBI investigators had given David assurances that he would remain anonymous and that his brother Ted would not learn who had turned him in. However, his identity was leaked by someone in the FBI to CBS News in early April 96. Side note. The FBI conducted an internal leak investigation, but the source of the leak was never identified. During this time, CBS anchorman Dan Rather called the FBI director and said that they were running a news story on who the Unabomber was. The FBI director requested that CBS wait 24 hours before breaking the story on the evening news so that they could capture Ted. The FBI then scrambled to finish the search warrant and have it issued by a federal judge in Montana. On April 3, 1996, Theodore Kaczynski was arrested at his remote cabin outside Lincoln, Montana. After his arrest, investigators combed through his cabin, finding bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments and descriptions of the Unabomber crimes, and even one live bomb ready for mailing. 
they also found what appeared to be the original typed manuscript of the manifesto. By this point, the Unabomber had been the target of one of the most expensive investigations in the FBI's history. Ted was indicted on 10 counts of bomb-related activity and 3 counts of murder. His lawyers urged him to plead insanity to avoid facing the death penalty. However, he refused to do so. He instead chose to plead guilty to all charges on January 22, 1998. He was then sentenced to 8 life terms without parole and was placed at the Super Maximum Security Prison Facility in Florence, Colorado, where he currently resides at the age of 79. All right, so that's the story of Theodore Kaczynski. But of course, it doesn't stop there. There are a lot of strange facts and findings that we're going to get into. So Hans, do you want to start us off with this first one? So our first strange fact and finding is about bombing of Flight 444. You guys remember that bombing, right? It was Ted's third bombing, which, you know, was on November 15th, 1979. The bomb on the plane actually didn't go off. It just started smoking. Well, something weird about the bombing is that during this time, nobody knew about the Unabomber. And guess what? An Iranian student group claimed responsibility. And if you don't know much about Iran, there was a big old revolt, an overthrow of the government in the 70s. Iran was doing a lot of crazy stuff. So... They claimed that they had placed the bomb in the airplane because of the harsh way the United States levied sanctions against Iran. Hmm. All right, Dan, what's this next strange fact I'm finding? So the next strange fact I'm finding revolves around the question of Ted actually being the person who did the bombings. I know this sounds a little weird, but listen to these strange facts and then form your own opinion. So we are going to go over some different facts instead of just one. Yeah, so the first one is that in the early hunt for the Unabomber, the portrayed perpetrator was far different from the eventual suspect, Ted. Even at one point in the investigation, the FBI sought out an individual whose first name was Nathan. Now, this was due to a fragment of a note that was found. It just a little knowledge nugget here. My theory goes deep into that. So that's going to be during the theories part. But anyways, sorry, go ahead with the next part in this strange fact, Hans. Another strange fact is that the FBI had found fingerprints on some of the bombs that Ted supposedly had built and some of the letters that he supposedly wrote. However, those fingerprints on the devices and the letters did not match Ted's. This was actually stated in an FBI affidavit. It said that the fingerprints attributed to the devices and letters mailed by the Unabomb subject were compared to those of Theodore Kaczynski. According to the FBI laboratory, no forensic correlation exists between these samples. Also, something else worth pointing out is that the manifesto consistently uses the words we and R and FC throughout it. FC meaning Freedom Club, which made people and investigators think it was a group of individuals doing the bombing. Something else odd is that there were metal plates stamped with the initials FC hidden somewhere, usually in the pipe end cap, in every bomb. And it just keeps going. 
in uh, paragraphs 204 and 205 of the FBI's search and arrest warrant for Theodore Kaczynski, it stated that experts, many of them academics consulted by the FBI, believed the manifesto had been written by another individual and not Theodore Kaczynski. So the paragraph 204 in the search warrant states, Your affiant, which is the one who swears by the affidavit, is aware that the other individuals have conducted analysis of the Unabom manuscript, determined that the manuscript was written by another individual, not Kaczynski, who had also been a suspect in the investigation. And then paragraph 205 in the search warrant states, Numerous other opinions from experts have been provided as to the identity of the Unabom subject. None of those opinions named Theodore Kaczynski as the possible author. Also stated in the search warrant, only a handful of people believed that Theodore Kaczynski was the Unabomber before they conducted a search warrant. However, when the case was finally presented to the public, authorities denied that, that there was ever anyone other than Ted involved in the crimes and that they always had believed without a doubt that it was him. Even though it's stated in the search warrant otherwise. Hmm. Reminds you of Waco, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Reminds me of Oklahoma's uh, bombing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Dan, so what's this next strange fact and finding? All right. So our next strange fact and finding is from a professor at Vermont Law School named Michael Mello, who is also the author of the book United States of America versus Theodore John Kaczynski. So in this book, the professor claims that Ted's brother, David, his mother, Wanda, and their lawyer, along with Kaczynski's defense attorneys, persuaded many in the media to portray Ted as a paranoid schizophrenic. And this really happened. David and Wanda gave a succession of interviews from 1996 onward to the Washington Post, the New York Times, and 60 Minutes, among other outlets, in which they sought to portray Ted as mentally disturbed and pathologically antisocial since childhood. All of it was made up and against Ted's wishes and without his knowledge. Now, why did they do this? Well, it was to save Ted from execution. And to add to this strange fact, there was something else that was strange in this trial and them trying to paint Ted as a schizophrenic. So the psychological experts for the defense team, Karen Froming, David Foster, Xavier Amador, all described Ted Kaczynski as a, and I quote, typical schizophrenic. Now, how did these experts reach their conclusions? Well, they didn't do any tests. Their conclusions came from his anti-technology writings. That's it. They didn't interview him or nothing. That's messed up. It is. Yeah. And we just keep rolling with the strange facts and findings. What's this next one, uh, Hans? Our next strange fact and finding is over what we kind of just discussed, the group FC. Now, the 13th and 14th bombing occurred only a couple days apart. Well, the day of the 13th bombing, the New York Times received a letter. The letter said, and I quote, We are an anarchist group calling ourselves FC. Notice that the postmark of this envelope precedes a newsworthy event that will happen about the time you receive this letter, if nothing goes wrong. This will prove that we knew about the event in advance, so our claim of responsibility is truthful. 
Ask the FBI about FC. They have heard of us. We will give information about our goals at some future time. Right now, we only want to establish our identity and provide an identification number that will ensure the authenticity of any future communications from us. Keep this number secret so that no one else can pretend to speak in our name. That number that they gave, they formatted it in a way that a social security number is written. It was a pretty interesting, uh, strange fact and finding. Not as interesting as this next strange fact and finding, which I thought was odd. All right, so a strange fact that is rarely, I mean rarely brought up, is how Ted got from Sacramento, California to Helena, Montana in only two hours. Now, you're probably thinking, what the hell am I talking about? So on December 11th, 1985, a bomb was placed in Sacramento's parking lot by the Unabomber that eventually killed the store owner, Hugh Scrutton. Well, that same afternoon, only two hours after the bombing, Ted pedaled his bicycle into Helena, Montana and deposited $10 cash into his bank account, which that placed him 25 hours away from the site of the bombing in California. Somehow, he got 25 hours away in only two hours. So someone did bring this up to the FBI, and the FBI said that they were unable to determine if Ted made the deposit himself or if he got somebody else to do it for him. Hmm. Yeah. Dude, he must be fast on the bike. Our next strange fact and finding, we actually kind of went over in a Theories Thursday episode. Patreon exclusive. Yeah, yeah, Patreon, which is over the Tylenol killer. In 2011, the FBI asked Ted to submit some of his DNA for testing, believing that he could have been the Tylenol killer. Why, might you ask? Because the deaths happened near Ted's parents' home in, that, in the Chicago area. Also, the founders of Johnson & Johnson, Robert Wood Johnson and James Wood Johnson, fit Ted Kaczynski's common theme of picking people with nature-themed names. Then there was a surveillance photo of who they think could have been the killer, which kind of resembled Teddy Boy. I can see it, but he looks a lot older in that picture. Like, he's got some gray up in his beard. Hey, but, but yeah. he would disguise himself. Yeah, true. All right, Dan, so what's this next one? So this next one is, while Ted was in prison, he received many letters from people that, you know, wrote to him. But there was one special pen pal that Ted had fallen in love with. A pen pal by the name of Joy Richards. A woman he referred to as Lady Love. They wrote many letters to each other and even discussed the idea of marriage. But Joy was diagnosed with cancer and passed away in 2006, which left Ted grieving alone in prison. It's kind of sad. It is sad. It's sad that she died, but at the same time, it's your fault you're there, Ted. Yeah. All right. So the next strange fact and finding that we have uh, is about the pipe bomb. So we know his first bombing, he used a fabricated pipe bomb-like thing, right? But that wasn't actually the first time he made a bomb. Now, before he graduated high school, he had already shown a great interest in making explosive devices. He took this opportunity in his science class and developed his first pipe bomb there, which kind of gamed him a little, uh, 
notoriety. Didn't y'all say that he exploded it in the school or something? We're about ready to go over something like that. Oh, okay. Well, let's roll into that then. All right. Our next strange fact and finding is called the Atomic Pearl. Back when Ted was a freshman in high school, he had a crush on a girl named Joanne. Ted wanted to ask her on a date, but, you know, he didn't really know how to break the ice. Then an idea popped in his head and he remembered he had a homemade poppet in his bag. You know, those little little uh, tissue papers you throw at the ground and go... Mm, yeah. He went to Joanne and gave it to her. She asked Ted what was she supposed to do with it. He explained to untwist the center and let the powders mix. When Joanne did, a loud but harmless crack filled the air. She smiled, Nick both kind of laughed, then Ted went in for the move. He then asked her for a date, which she made up some kind of, you know, reason of why, you know, I'm doing something, and just kind of left him standing there. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, shortly after Joanne rejected Ted, some jock came up to him and said it was a cool thing he had made. He asked Ted for his recipe in exchange for him hooking Ted up with any girl that he liked in that school. So, Ted, thinking he'd, you know, get as many dates as he want, gave him the recipe for the Atomic Pearl. Well, shortly after he gave the recipe away, that jock made an extremely overpowered version of the Atomic Pearl, and it blew the windows out of one of the classrooms. Now, Ted was blamed for it, but in the end, he was never punished for it. Damn. Did he, was he able to get any girl he wanted, though? No. Dude, he got played. Ah, damn. That sucks. All right. Well, that's the end of Strange Facts and Findings. Now that moves us into theories. All right. So our first theory is going to kind of be a sort of a discussion and a theory. It's about why the media portrayed Ted as a crazy person. We're going to start off this theory with reading a journal entry that Ted made before the bombings actually started. And he kind of already anticipated this or as to the media portraying him as crazy. So Ted said, and I quote, I intend to start killing people. If I am successful at this, it is possible that when I am caught, not alive I hope, there will be some speculation in the news media as to my motives for killing. If some speculation occurs, they are bound to make me out to be a sickie and to ascribe to me motives of a sick type. Of course, the term sick in such a context represents a value judgment. The news media may have something to say about me when I am killed or caught, and they are bound to try to analyze my psychology and depict me as a sick person. So that's what he wrote in his, di uh, his journal diary. So that brings us to the question. Why was the media and public so ready to just dismiss Ted as being crazy? Now, there is a theory as to why. So there is the guy named Michael Mello, who we talked about earlier, the, the professor at Vermont Law School, who is also the author of the book United States of America versus Theodore Kaczynski. So he stated that the reason that the media was so quick to suggest that Ted was crazy is he said that the public wished to see Ted as insane because Ted's ideas are too extreme for us to contemplate without discomfort. 
Ted challenges our most cherished beliefs. The manifesto itself challenges the basic assumptions of virtually every interest group that was involved with his case. The lawyers, the mental health experts, the press and politics, both left and right politicians. Kaczynski's defense team convinced the media and the public that Ted was crazy. They decided that the Unabomber was mentally ill and his ideas were mad. So that's what this theory is, is that the media painted him as crazy because his ideas were right, but they were too extreme for us to contemplate without discomfort. I mean, if you really sit down and read his manifesto, you, you look at it and you think about when you were a kid and how far technology has come. And you start thinking like, oh, he wrote this back in 95. And you're looking at today. Well, it controls everything. What do you do when your kid's acting out in public? Oh, you find some YouTube streaming stuff. Hand, it, hand your phone to your kid. We can't go anywhere without this. Car breaks down. We have a phone. We become dependent on this phone. Such as we become dependent on television, the internet, to get any knowledge instead of picking up a book. I'm not supporting, like, his campaign of bombings and how he went about pushing his ideals, but if you read his book, it's very compelling. Yeah, and I just want to say we are not defending what he did, his bombings and stuff like that. We're just talking about the manifesto itself and his ideas. So Yeah, no, we don't support the injuries and deaths. It's not what we're about. But, I'm, but I mean, reading it, he was years ahead of any thinking. If he was truly the one that wrote it, we also have to put that in perspective. Yeah. Yes. Like it says on the front of it, written as the Freedom Club. Yeah. So it's not. Do you have that thing printed out next to your desk? I got the book. I do too. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I gave it to Anna to read. She never read it. The, the beginning of it, like it, he does target the leftists and whatnot. He does go in. It's kind of like personally attacking him. But then it gets, you know, more detailed about it. And it's not really attacking them. He's breaking down their psychology and why they think the way they do. And he's right. And I'm not siding with left. I'm not right. I'm not left. I'm nothing politically. I'm nothing. I'm for the party of the people. But what he says when it comes down to psychology and why the people act the way they do, he is right in those aspects. Now, Hans, didn't you say something about you had a theory about him being some like uh, a, a killing machine or something like yeah, that? Or I, I do. This is kind of like my personal thought and theory. OK, so I know we're we still got these other theories to go through, but I'm just going to lay it out right now. So my theory revolves around the people that Ted targeted. Most, if not all, had a job field in bettering technology for the future. Now, maybe his time as an early MK Ultra victim, I'm not going to say participant or test subject, he was a victim. You know, let's say it worked on him and they released him. And this Freedom Club was a shadow organization that wanted the halt or the slowing down of technology. And this was a, you know, shadow organization, government, the deep state. 
and they knew who to use because early in his Harvard years, he wrote an anti-technology essay that he used with Dr. Henry Murray that they picked apart. So he was against technology before it got out of control. And when this Freedom Club realized that, you know, had technology was accelerating, they said, what better person to use than Mr. Kaczynski? So they used the mind control techniques, you know, a word, a phrase, a smell, or a picture. And it sent his brain into overdrive. And he started to become a recluse, you know, cut off all conversation with his family. Because when his father died, he didn't even show up to the funeral. He just called his mom and said, yeah, it's sad. Okay, bye, mom. And that was it. And he started pumping out bombs. And he wasn't well trained in it, you know, obviously, because out of the 17 he, you know, mailed, only three of them killed somebody. The rest seriously injured a lot of people, but he, his goal, or what FC, the Freedom Club's goal was, was to just destroy technology, to halt it, or to slow it down. And he was pushed as the Manchurian candidate for political beliefs. And maybe he knew what he was doing, and he thought, wow, FC's going to take responsibility. But guess what? They didn't. He took the blame of it. He took the full force of it. And he has eight consecutive life sentences because of it. That's my personal thought. I always had sort of like a feeling that there was some group out there, like this FC was the real group who was doing it. And he was kind of like the scapegoat. And he was like, look, as long as you guys keep pushing and doing what you're doing and just don't send out any more bombs, I will take the fall for these bombs and you guys keep pushing your agenda some other way. Look at the Oklahoma City bomber. Multiple witnesses saw more than just Timothy McVeigh and they, the media knew it was Timothy McVeigh before anybody else did. And like I had mentioned there, he was the Manchurian candidate too. I mean, you can see it. The two bombers, they had political beliefs. Yeah. They push forth a political ideal. Damn. I like that. I like that, Hans. That's pretty good. All right, Dan. So what's the next theory? All right. So the next one got here is a theory that goes off the fact that he was quarantined in the hospital when he was nine months old because of the severe case of hives. The way the doctors handled hives back then was not gentle and caring at all. They kept him restrained and, you know, kept him isolated from his parents. They were only able to come like every other day, seemed like maybe an hour or so at most. They said that this deeply scarred Ted and that he never returned back to normal, back to a happy baby, and that it ruined the person that he would have grown up to become. He never really fit in at school because of his social skills that he blames on the hospital and his parents. So his social skills were not the best, so he was considered an outcast, especially having a higher IQ than most. People treated him differently, and that could have affected the way he felt about the world because of the way the world saw him. So pretty much it's hospitalization PTSD or something like that. You know, it just, it just scarred him. How many kids were got it, though? I mean, if that was the case, you'd have multiple Unabombers running around, right? 
Yeah, but he was nine months old. I read a study that between the age of six months to 12 months is when a child needs their family the most. They, like, form that connection like that. Ah, this is dad. Hey, this is mom. You know, happy to see you. That during that, you know, couple weeks he was there, it stunted that ability because he didn't have his mom or dad there all the time. He didn't have that stimulation of a, of a parental figure. Maybe. I did read up. I wasn't able to verify. But, like, when the doctors restrained him when he was younger, they actually, like, had straps, you know, holding him out. They said that he was pretty much sprawled out, like, sprawled eagled, pretty much, spread eagle, on the table because of it, this hives or whatever. So I guess he was scratching or something. Honestly, just the way it sounded, I'd probably be scarred, but... Yeah, that could be the reason. I don't I don't know, man. I think it's a combination of like all that, if that was the yeah. case though. The PTSD from being having hives and uh the Harvard studies, maybe all of that. I mean, when he was younger, his parents didn't know how to handle him after that either. Maybe that wasn't even their kid. Maybe they gave him the wrong kid back. He doesn't look anything like his brother. Cause I think uh his father ended up like stopped trying to bond with him after a while. But this was like probably right before he graduated high school. But his mom kept trying and kept trying to understand, you know, why he was the way he was. But yeah. All right. So what's this last theory we got here before we hop into our own personal thoughts and theories? So this last theory is that Ted never made any of these bombs. And it kind of revolves around the fingerprints found on some of the bombs and the letters it, it, that just didn't match Ted's. Maybe. Ted was a paranoid schizophrenic. You know, we, we can't leave out the possibility that, yes, he was mentally, you know, ill. You know, maybe Ted saw these bombings and saw that at first no one was taking responsibility, you know, and then he saw that, oh, this FC. Well, you know, who was FC? He then wrote letters to the FBI immediately that he was claiming the destructions and bombings in order to push forth his delusional ideas of technology. I mean, you know, in the warrant, it says it's not Ted. That's true. Fingerprints said, hey, these don't match Ted's. So, Dan, what is your opinion on this whole thing? I, I feel like Ted's like a, you know, he's a, he's a social outcast. And if he was used as like a scapegoat, He's a, he was like the perfect target for it. Socially outcasted, lives out in the woods by himself. You know, his brother, supposedly when he turned him in, he didn't really want to turn him in for the fact that he, what happened at like Waco and Ruby Ridge. He knew that, you know, Ted would try to defend himself out there. I mean, shoot, you're out there living by yourself in a, like what, a 10 by 12 or 10 by 10 shack? Yeah. Which the FBI actually dismantled completely and rebuilt it in their warehouse until they either gave it away or sold it to a museum. But, you know, just he seemed like a good target to blame this stuff on. Not saying that he's innocent in any way, but, you know, he could still been part of the uh, Project MK Ultra. Yeah. Which made him the t easy target then. Like I said, a uh, Manchurian candidate. All right. Well, do either of you have anything to add to today's episode? If you haven't read the manifesto, I would highly recommend it. And, um, yeah, look, guys, we understand, you know, everybody has their ideals, but violence is not the way to solve it. Never.
It may sound good. Yeah, it might sound good in your head, but in the end, it's not worth it. Take a look at people that try to push their ideals with violence. Yeah, you're right, Hans. All right. Um, well, that's the end of the episode today. And again, this is episode 100. So like, like we stated at the beginning of the episode, we're going we're gonna to take a break for a few weeks. Now, we won't be taking a break from Patreon. We're still going to be putting out an episode every week on Patreon. We're still going to be getting on the Patreon-exclusive Discord, watching movies with the other Patreon supporters, you know. So if you aren't on there, hop on, come hang out with us, come listen to our Patreon episodes. We'll be back in a few weeks. You know, we're just taking a quick break. We love you all, and, you know, we just want to let you guys know that. 100%. But got a lot of exciting things coming for season four. So definitely make sure you, you know, send in some top uh, listener suggestions because season four is coming up. We got to make that list. We do. Yep. We're making the, we're acquiring and making the list, checking it twice. And we're going to find, find out whose topics on the list are not are nice. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so I guess let's roll on some to some quick shout outs before we roll out of today's episode. Uh, I just got a few. I want to shout out Holly Maccabee, Nicole Mendoza, Kia McKenna, Bianca, Doug Parsons, Dave Moore, Jessica Cronin, TJ for saying that he loves us. Well, hey, yo, dude, I love you. And then he also says that, hey, uh, I want to wonder if you guys could give a special shout out to my wife, Ellen. She just found out she's getting into nursing school after putting in her schooling and everything on hold because she had our daughter. She's a huge fan of the show, and I know it would mean the world if you guys could give her a shout out and congratulations. Well, you know what, Ellen? You know what? I know life is tough sometimes. You got to put things on hold, but you did the right thing. You put your family first. You put your kids first. It's what you do, but now you're doing you now, right? You're getting your life better for you and your kids, and I'm proud of you for getting into nursing school, and I love you, and I know your husband, TJ, is too, so I just want to let you know congratulations, and I'm so proud of you. Dude, couldn't have said it any better right there. Congrats. Much love. Yeah, the world needs more nurses, so, you know. It's going to be hard, but you can do it. I need a prostate exam coming up, so I'm coming to you. Yeah, come. All right. So our uh, next shout out to Stella. Uh, Brent Cameron said, uh, no dick pics, no reply. We ain't getting any, brother. Shout out to Cowgirl Glow. Loves her podcast. Well, you know what? I love you. Kelly Tenner says she's in love with our podcast. Well, I'm in love with you. Nice red hair, dude. Um... Jasmine Champion, Lady Bacon, Kevin Cardenas, Yanez, Brittany Petit, Caitlin Short. She said that she's obsessed with her podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, Miguel Rodriguez, Brittany, Alexander Gardadia, 99. I'm sure I pronounced your last name wrong. I'm sorry. Chad Johnson Mitch, Mitchin, Justin Barrett, Ollie J, Liz Mercer, Manuel Colazzo. Colazo, Lace McSpatten, Sarah LG, Travis Neal, Jose Nararo, Higher Burning, Mike Stateman, Didi Garcia, Robbie Longoria, Nick Lee, Dyland, Joey Pfeiffer, Raul Acevedo, and Lucas Wayland. I love you all. I'm proud of every single one of you. And I hope you all have an amazing weekend. All right. Dan, who do you got for shout outs on Facebook this week? All right. For Facebook, I only got a few. 
Shout out to Maverick J, Brandon E, Spencer K, Brandon and Crystal R, Matt B, which Matt, we are accepting suggestions for topics. So if you have one, send it on over, buddy. Then uh, Emilio H. They hit me up on Facebook. Still got to respond. But that's for Facebook. Then just a couple for Discord. Squid the Don. Shout out to him. Jamie, Jordan, Tosh, Arnold, our buddy Kaiser Soze, and Darwin. And that's what I got. Nice. All right, Hans, what do you got for shout outs this week? Haha. <laughs> First shout out goes to uh, good old Stevie Ray. You know who you are, old man. Um, Thin Glizzy, uh, hop over your Discord real quick. Uh, Mr. G, I'm glad that you enjoyed my restaurant recommendation. I'm glad that when you ate that mustard, it cleared your sinuses out. I told you, a little goes a long way when you go there. Chinese mustard? Ha, it is horseradish mustard. Oh. Yes, so, and it's freshly made, so a little bit goes a long way. You got a sinus infection, by God, it'll clear that out in a second. Mm, Put some hair on that chest, I know it did my mother. Anyways, um, shout out to Eden. Um, hop over here to my email real quick. Uh, shout out to Aubrey Kane. She sent me an email. I don't know if you guys got it. Kind of sent a screenshot of it to you guys. It says, saw this book advertised on TikTok. Thought it was cool and should share it with you. I love listening to you all. Used to go to college in the Dirty dirty Hoat a few years ago. Keep on keeping on. Well, I'm sorry that you went to, you know, school in Terre Haute. Although it does have nice nursing programs in that town. Um, But what she sent was a book called Operation Mockingbird and the Church Committee and it looks like a children's book nice yeah so love the email thank you for it and um yeah that's that's all I got for shout outs nice okay yeah I got a couple more shout outs on discord um I want to shout out to Squid to Dawn uh Jamie Red Dadpool Rusty Shakalaka Fart 1666 Tentacle Brain, Minx, OG Dell, Jordan, Azari, Tosh, Justine, Lisa Davis, and all the movie night folks, Harry, you know, Pete, Lunchtain, Wieners, all of you. Arnold, I love you all. If I missed you, I'm sorry. Discordian, I love you. If I missed you, I'm sorry. Uh, just want to let you know that I love you, that I just... Can't get enough of all y'all. Thank you for the great community. Uh, We'll see you back in a couple weeks for the regular episodes. If you're on Patreon, we'll see you each week like always. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan and Hans, you want to roll us out of season three? Sure will. Hell yeah. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you're not alone.